This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are my interviews with the cinematographer for Killers of the Flower Moon, Rodrigo Prieto, and the film's production designer, Jack Fisk. You know, you got, you got nice color skin. What color would you say that is? My color. The Osage. They have the worst land possible. But they outsmarted everybody. The land had oil on it. Black gold. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. (laughs) (laughs) This wealth should come to us. Their time is over. It's just going to be another tragedy. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else. They're like buzzards circling our people. We're still warriors. Everyone, I am being joined right now by the cinematographer for Killers of the Flower Moon, Rodrigo Prieto. Rodrigo, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today to talk about the latest Martin Scorsese masterpiece. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. Now, you've been working with Mr. Scorsese now for a couple of films in a row at this point, from Wolf of Wall Street over to Silence and then over to The Irishman and now Killers of the Flower Moon. I guess really other than the fact that he's the greatest uh, living American filmmaker, I imagine that the challenge of each project is something that must excite you because each one of those films are so distinct from the other. So you're not only getting to work with one of the masters of the art form but also there must be tremendous creative challenges that come along with each project i imagine absolutely it's uh, interesting to me that uh, scorsese keeps exploring subject matter that might have things in common but are actually uh, very different in terms of setting even if it might be the same actor leonardo dicaprio and in, in wolf of wall street and now in killers of the flower moon couldn't be really couldn't be more different the characters and the setting uh and uh i I just love the way uh he really does deep dives into the worlds you know it's Mm -hmm. not the very deep exploration of these characters but it's also really understanding or trying to understand let's say the the world of finance uh uh, you know and 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 the, the the what people do around that or did at the time of uh the wolf of wall street and in this case um, really getting deep into Oklahoma in the 1920s and trying as best we could to to learn about the uh, Osage culture, which was uh, very exciting. Absolutely. I can only imagine. And now this movie, like The Irishman, has a pretty hefty price tag uh, attached to it. I know on The Irishman, you guys had to utilize multiple cameras. There was so much intricacies regarding the visual effects work that went into that. So with this project, I imagine a lot of it has to do with shooting on location, sets, and uh, having a lot of extras for some of these scenes too. Um, can you talk to me just a little bit about the advantages and maybe disadvantages too of work? 
working with a larger budget compared to something on a smaller scale? Well, this was also a, an expensive shoot because of COVID. You know, that's always a, yeah. a key thing. Yes, we had, you know, all these protocols in place. And sometimes we actually have to stop because someone got sick, you know, things of that sort. Uh, so everything took a little longer, too. Um, but certainly it's a, a big period piece. You know, we had to do a lot of building. Uh, certainly there's some set extensions with visual effects, but... Uh, you know, we just had to uh, say, for example, in downtown Pahaska, we we recreated what would be like downtown Fairfax. Uh, so lots of those facades had to be built. But I think one one thing that was uh, really amazing about shooting in Oklahoma is that we were in the actual places where things happened. Mm -hmm. We shot, for example, inside the doctor's office. Uh, that's the the actual office where. They worked where they were, the shown, shown doctors, where they administer the, um, you know, the medicine for, for Molly. Uh, and also right on the same building is the Masonic Hall. It's the actual place where the, these events happen. So there's a certain energy to that. Uh, there is a complication because now, you know, you, whatever limitations the, the location has, you have to deal with it, if, you know, technically. Uh, but, uh, for example, the Masonic Hall, the, the roof had been blocked in there's these skylights that that normally would have you know had light from the sky but this was uh, had a cement roof on top of it i had to fit in lights in there you know to make it look naturalistic but um anyway these challenges are very well worth it um in terms of budget i've never ever been on a movie where you feel okay we have the resources everything we we could possibly want you know there's it's always tight yeah. and um it's there's always the resources just enough so that you can make it happen but uh the scale of this film is 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 big and uh it, also part of the process was rewriting things as we went and the actors themselves were finding new new dialogue and and you know for example dialogue in osage learning the, these things so we were incorporating all sorts of stuff as we went so that would be actually an advantage of having let's say the budget to allow for that you know to to allow for uh, things to evolve and you know if necessary add a day here or a day there to the schedule so that was i think uh, i'm very grateful to apple because they they did support the film in the way that was needed can you tell me a little bit about your mythology between Shooting a scene where there is either going to be a use of high key lighting versus say high contrast in shadows or or soft use of shadows. I say this because there are some moments here in Killers where I noticed, that, um, particularly during um, DiCaprio's character's uh, interrogation scenes with Jesse Plemons, very, very harsh white lighting on his face uh, during some of those scenes. But then there are other scenes, too, where the light is a bit softer and there is that contrast of um, some shadows in the background. Um, just curious to know what goes into a particular scene or shot uh, that makes you make those choices. Okay, good eye. Uh, that's a, a big part of the essence of, of what I do or what we do as cinematographers. Uh, and uh, that is to support the emotional moment of each scene with the feeling that that uh, lighting gives the audience. You know, there, it's, it's uh, something that's abstract. You can't really say exactly th this type of lighting will create this this effect it's mm -hmm. like you know it's it's the score in the movie it, it, it's it's something that somehow subliminally affects you 
So for Ernest, uh, I, I thought that we'd place him in increasingly uncomfortable situations with the light, and um, because that's what how he's feeling. His 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 uh, his guilt is gnawing at him, and and he's confused and trying to figure out what he's going to do next and and uh so that's why in the indeed in the interrogation scenes i base it on uh reality or, or naturalism so there is a light bulb on a china hat in that room so yeah we just put a very bright bulb on it literally and then you know aimed it straight at him so it's it, it's something that feels authentic but it's enhanced or in the courthouse for example he, he uh, you know i had this hot sun on his face yeah. Same idea, you know, it's just uncomfortable. Whereas, you know, there are other moments where uh, the, his feelings towards Molly, you know, it, it's it's difficult, but uh, he feels good around her. So indeed, I tried to make the lighting more intimate and, and indeed softer for scenes like that. Also, the look evolves during the movie, halfway point, no, a little later, like three quarters into the film, there's this pivotal moment huge uh, explosion a big problem i'm not going to spoil it but from that moment on i shifted the look of the film to a much harsher higher contrast feel to symbolize uh this 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 feeling of being lost you know literally um there's this fire scene that's like suddenly being in hell uh, in yeah. a way you know hell's around all these characters so it's all might be symbolic but it's uh it's also emotional I'm glad that you brought up that scene in particular. I was going to ask you about that and what went into logistically, like just even photographing that because fire is just such an unpredictable element. I imagine because also too, it's so vast, there must be some visual effects enhancement. You guys did obviously light an entire field on fire, I imagine, but mm -hmm. no, or, or, or you visual did, effects. <laughs> no, no, you did. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah, Wait, yeah. So please walk me through that then. How how do you go about using that as your light source and then capturing that in such a way that uh, it gives off this feeling, like you said, of creating hell on earth for these characters? I mean, the only time it's an actual visual effects is when the uh, FBI, they're by the oil rigs and they see the smoke and the sky is lit up. That's the only moment that wasn't happening, you know, wasn't for real. But when you see William Hill and and the his ranch house and the fire around it, that's all real fire. And wow, buried pipes in different strategic places. We knew where the frame was going to be, exactly where the camera was going to be. And and I worked closely with the special effects people to set every spot where I thought the fire would really work. In the foreground, in the midground, and behind the the house, because I knew we wanted to see the silhouettes of the workers. You know, that's one of the moments where you see them distorted through the heat waves of the fire. So it was all placed very strategically, but still, as we were shooting, it was a surprise the amount of distortion that happened through the fire, and and so it looks kind of liquid. The image looks like a very surreal but it's real and it's uh it's just the effect of of the heat waves and then we took that idea of the fire all the way towards uh Ernest's uh house where he is with Molly which is not even close by to the ranch so the fire lighting and those scenes is completely subjective it's not something that is realistic in any way but it's that feeling of this connection with you know he can't escape his uncle's influence on him and 
it is creating a hell, a living hell for him. So that's why we put fire lighting outside of the bedroom where he is injecting Molly. Well, Rodrigo, it's a three and a half hour, well, near three and a half hour long film. And I thank you so much for just giving us a little bit of insight into what went into uh, the making of this movie. Your work is greatly appreciated by all of us. And I cannot wait to see hopefully more collaborations between you and Mr. Scorsese in the future. Congratulations on this film. And thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. Take care. You too. I ought to kill these white men who killed my family. I need you here. I am right here. You've got to take back control of your home. I was uh, sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. See what about them? See who's doing it. Expecting a miracle to make all this go away. You know they don't happen anymore. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Next Best Picture Podcast, where I am being joined right now by the legendary, iconic, all-time great production designer, Jack Fisk. Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about your latest work on Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited about the film and uh, love to share what I can. I mean, I, I think we're all very excited to hear, first and foremost, uh, considering your lengthy history working with a master in someone like Terrence Malick or uh, your work on uh, There Will Be Blood, which got a lot of praise upon its release with Paul Thomas Anderson. This is your first time working on a Martin Scorsese film. So can you tell us a bit about what that was like and did he live up to his reputation in your mind of what it would be like working with him? Uh, Marty not only lived up to it, but he surpassed it in that he, you know, sometimes you think people get old and they get stuck in their ways or they, you know, or, you know, they have one way of doing something. He was inventive and youthful. And and I saw him grabbing uh, ideas from the set or from, you know, uh, an actor in the rehearsal uh, that it was all it was like alive. It was always changing in the script he worked on throughout the shooting and just kept making things better. He wanted to make it better. Yeah, it was exciting. It reminded me of, of other filmmakers I've worked with, you know, starting in the 70s. I, I consider myself one of the luckiest uh, production designers around because I've, I've gotten to work such great talent. But Marty uh, lived up to his reputation, and it was exciting to watch him work. I, I got to set in on 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 the rehearsals, and, and that's where I saw his inventiveness. And how we approached it without being locked into an idea, but sort of went with what the actors gave him, the location gave him, the story gave him, and came up with something that might have been limited if he tried to pre-plan it. Gotcha. Well, this is a mammoth production. There's so many sets that need to be built. There are just so many scenes in general, being that it's a period film too. You guys were lucky that you were able to shoot a lot of this on location. And so can you talk to me a little bit about um, the logistics of what needed to be created? What was already in existence for you guys to use in shooting in Oklahoma? Like, tell me a little bit about just uh, ultimately what had to go into creating uh, this 
this era. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Well, we were able to narrow down our set building to a million and a half acres. <laughs> uh, we were also, uh, we started working on the film uh, January 11th. And I remember one day waking up, it was 14 degrees outside. And, uh, you know, often we have, uh, you know, rains and winds because we were in Tornado Alley that would just, you know, wow. they play havoc with the carpenters and painters. You know, it's hard to paint when the paint's frozen and it's, you know, and then it would go from, cold to hot it'd be blistering hot the some of the locations that we chose were difficult to get to so we had to put in gravel roads for the crew to even be able to get in there to work wow uh, materials because we we're uh, you know the effect of covid and stuff materials were limited and often we had to buy you know two by 12s if we wanted two, two by sixes because two by sixes weren't about you know whatever it was we were making do and uh you know, now when I think back, you know, I was I was like in sort of passion making the film. But now when I look back, I, I realize how difficult it was for the for the carpenters and builders to get all this together in so many locations. And yeah. And because of the weather and because there were other films going, it was hard to attract, you know, the crews to come all the way to Oklahoma. And they knew they would be, uh, you know, away from their families and their homes and. You know, and, and it was a time when you couldn't drive two people in a car. You had to, you know, it was like one person to a car and, and you're trying to work with a mask on and it, it was uh, it was complicated. But that said, we were given two blocks, decrepit blocks in Pahuska to build our town of Fairfax uh, because the town of Fairfax had, well, in Fairfax, there were no hotels. There were no restaurants. There was one hamburger joint and great people, but no place to uh you know, to supply a, a crew of uh, living quarters. So most everybody lived in Bartlesville, but our shop and our town was in Pahuska, and that was the biggest build. They gave us two blocks of Pahuska, which were decrepit and falling apart. Some buildings we weren't even allowed to go into because of the, you know, the the mold and the, you know, the safety of the building, you know, staying up, but, you know, it was questionable. We worked on those from the outside, but we all the buildings we could find that were solid, we kind of devised ways to build sets within them. And that's when we did the pool hall was one of those towns in those two blocks of Pahuska. And that was a major set. And it uh, it turned out to be great because it had these huge windows that looked out onto the street that we were building, the street of Fairfax. So we got double production value. You know, you had the set itself, but then you had the extension of the set, which was a whole street and people going by. Yeah. And it created the idea that the... Uh, the people plotting and scheming in the pool hall had, a, you know, they had their eye on everybody out there. They kind of knew who had money, what was happening, and here's going there, and what car they're driving. So it was uh, eyes on the world. Yeah, that was fun. Now in Fairfax, where the story, most of our story took place, 
we found the original doctor's offices, which still existed. We had to, you know, uh, uh, get in and paint them and clean them up. But there was something about the being in the history, being in the real uh, rooms that our characters were in. And they were like horrible characters. I mean, they were, you know, responsible for deaths of, 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 of Osage citizens. And the, also there was the uh, Masonic Lodge. And that was just a great structure. And when I first went in there to look at it, I mean, it was bright white, you know, it was, it was kind of decrepit. And, uh, but there were pictures of all the past members. And a lot of our characters written about from the 20s were up on the walls because they'd been yeah. members there back from 1924, I think, when they, they moved. It's, it was called the Gray Horse Masonic Lodge. But uh, I remember when we got their location, they they were having a they were going to have a beating and the all the people at Bondi Masonic Lodge were so old they didn't want to go up the stairs to the lodge so they decided to have their meeting down in the street <laughs> there was like a couple of benches down there so they sat down there and had their meeting I got the idea of I wanted to make it a, an interesting space because it's such a bizarre scene that takes place in there and I read about a lot of Masonic lodges in the middle in the Midwest and uh, and got that idea of painting it a dark blue and uh, Rodrigo Prieto, the, the cinematographer, uh, he just went with it. You know, normally people go, no, I can't say it's too dark enough. But he <laughs> found out a way to light it. And uh, and I think it made the scene stranger, but more effective and and uh, and certainly more interesting than just, you know, happening in a, you know, a white rectangular room. The, one of the reasons I want to change it, because there was a large carpet in there and the room is about 100 feet long. And I wanted to save that carpet. So I was trying to think of colors that went with that carpet. And that's why I found the yeah. you know, purples and blues that, uh, that I did the walls and, and was able to save the carpet. We built Molly's house and we built that out on a ranch between Pahuska and Fairfax. And I found a, a, a stream that went through that ranch that was very similar to the stream in Gray Horse where her house was. Mm. And I oriented it on that stream the same way it was. And then across the stream, we built uh, parts of Gray Horse uh, Reservation. And a Gray Horse Reservation, and there's there's two other reservations, one Pahuska and one Hominy, that the Osage maintained 160 acres that any Osage could come and stay there for free. And so they would come and put up their, uh, you know, native structures and and cars and, and uh, live there. Well, few, a few houses were built there, and Molly's family was one of the families that had a house on um, reservation land. Uh, when Lizzie died, she left that house, which was described as five rooms and a value of $2,000, uh, to her grandchildren. But she couldn't leave them the land because it was, you know, it was uh, native land still. It was never allocated to an individual, but kept in the hands of the tribe. So that was the start. And then uh, Hale's house we built, we built that on another ranch closer to Bartlesville. And that was, uh, we wanted to have something that was impressive. Yeah. I mean, we saw in the research his house, he had many houses in Fairfax. He had, he was like a real estate baron, uh, but he had a, a tiny house on his ranch. And to simplify everything, we decided to give him a larger house on his ranch and forget about explaining all this in-town property because we only had three hours and 15 minutes. Uh, but it, 
it worked out well and it was nice building the house. I mean, he looked, you know, somebody asked people call him King. You sort of figure they have to have some sort of substance. <laughs> and in real life he did, but it was just spread out over multiple houses and blocks and stuff. His Anna, who was shot in the head down by the creek, uh, she had just bought a house from Hale shortly before she was killed for $16,000. It was a little craftsman house in Fairfax. And then when she died, after she died, I was looking through the real estate records in Fairfax in Posca. It ended up back in his wife's name and she got it for $8,000. So he sold it to her for 16, got it back for eight. Wow. He had so many schemes going. Uh, he, went, he wanted to sell Molly uh, $8,000 worth of cattle. But he said, don't worry about it. You don't have to have a farm or anything. I'll take care of them. I'll keep them at my house. Just give me the money for $8,000 you know, worth of cattle, and I'll keep them for you, and you don't even have to think about it. But the, the Osage uh, governors, the, 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 the farmer, uh, said, this is, doesn't sound right. And he sort of refused that. But he had done it in the past. He had done it to many other people. And uh, to combat that or husband Ernest went out and bought a 400 acre farm in Fairfax, but uh, she, because of her illness and stuff, she wanted to be in the town. And so we gave her a second home, which was a, a real house that we just, you know, we brought back. And that was a craftsman home in the town of Fairfax. We shot a lot of the homes in the Fairfax that, you know, that were actually lived in by Osage in the twenties. And some of them still are, you know, some friends yeah. of Osage that lived there. Uh, Interesting thing was her sister, Rita and Bill and Bill wasn't any better than Hale. You know, he, you know, her one sister was married to him and she died. And then the second sister married him. Mm -hmm. And, but Hale uh, saw a competition. He wanted to get rid of Bill as well as Rita. You know, he wanted all that money to go back to uh, Molly so that he would have some kind of control. And so we, we were looking around and found a house near where their house had really blown up. It looked very similar to the pictures. I had some pictures of a house before it blew up because it belonged to the Dr. Shones, the, uh, one of the doctors, and uh, and he sold it to Rita. And uh, anyway, Rita wanted to move there to town because she felt safer than living out in the country. But when she got to the town, she didn't know <laughs> her house was going to be destroyed. But we found this house that looked like the original house. And as uh, Mike Fantasia, our location coordinator went to negotiate the deal on the house i said ask him if we can blow it up and uh he came back the next day he said they said yes wow and it ends up that their grandfather these two women that inherited it their grandfather lived in the house had a white wife who was also his guardian spent all of his money made his life miserable and you know they were both dead now but they just wanted to get rid of all those bad memories and I said, we'll give it back to you. It'll be grass on it. It'll be a nice lot. And they were happy. Wow. So, uh, you know, we couldn't actually blow it up because of the, the uh, you know, environmental laws and stuff. Only just explode a place with, you know, knowingly. So we had to dismantle it piece by piece and kind of recreate it. But it's the same house. We were able to fix it up, shoot in it. The company went away for two weeks. We destroyed it, you know, piece it back together and made it look burned up. And they came back and shot it destroyed. So that was uh, that was great. The Osage all over Fairfax. Uh, I did, you know, uh, had more dealings with the Osage in Fairfax in in Gray Horse. They were so generous, uh, you know. Yeah. They gave us so much, and they gave us so much of the history. And 
you know, but nobody there quite remembers what it was like in 1920 because people in 1920 are a hundred years old. Yeah. And, uh, and so they, you know, they would talk about their grandmothers and, and I remember when we built Molly's house, there was a, 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 a an Osage woman that came in who was, uh, one of the women associated with the film it was her grandmother and they told me the story that she came in and she's she, she i don't know if she cried or she got emotional she said it reminded us so much of her grandmother's house so i knew we were on the right track and uh you know the best you can hope for is to get the essence of of a time and um so be able to trans pe transport people into what the world to the best of your educated guesses and research, you know, you know, will give you, um, you know, and there's always some compromise, but Marty uh, encouraged me to do things more real. And that's what I like to do. So uh, that's what we work toward. You can't beat these recreations that are caught in camera. And I, I want to thank you for such a lengthy response. You answered almost every follow-up question that I <laughs> had. Um, so I, I will end with asking uh, this ultimately. What is the number one thing that, um, other than getting the chance to work with uh, Scorsese, of course, and paying tribute to the Osage people, um, is there a particular set, scene, anything that you are walking away from Killers of the Flower Moon most proud of? I uh I'm I'm excited by the fact that we were trusted by the Osage to tell their story mm -hmm. and uh, sort of considered an honor and that all of us worked hard to do that, you know, and it, it must be difficult for them to trust, you know, a, a, a white filmmaking company to come in and tell their story. But they lucked out getting, you know, Marty getting the property and uh, and Marty put together a company that that agreed with his idea of making a Western. The thing that excited him historically was just that assimilation of reading all the history from Lewis and Clark up to the 1924 trial of Ernest, you know, just saturating myself with that, that, that history. Uh, I once was researching Lewis and Clark, and then suddenly they were involved in these uh, treaties with the Osage Indians back in 1808 and 1825. And, and it makes you think, I mean, everybody's revising or rethinking, uh, you know, our leaders, you know, you know, from George Washington up. Yeah. And see how we all, you know, and I think it was 1808 or so they, they the Louisiana purchase took place. The French just sold the old sage land to America, you know, for however many millions of dollars, the American government was going in to get that land so they could, they could uh, settle it. And they couldn't settle it as long as the Osage were on it or the all the other tribes. And they just started like punching them together into, um, into the, the Indian territories, which later became Oklahoma. Yeah. But the, the creek were, were taken out of Louisiana and Florida, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the Cherokees were in North Carolina. They had banking systems and farming and all that. They were, they were established communities and they were forcibly moved to Oklahoma and, you know, thousands of them died in the process. It's a, uh, it's a history that we can't and shouldn't ignore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what excited me most is that some more of this is exposed. I know Marty took the time to put in the Tulsa race riot, you know, the, the yeah. destruction of, of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, which happened at exactly the same time in 1921. 
And I've read about towns in Florida where that happened and, you know, and in towns in other countries like Canada and Australia, mm-hmm. the indigenous people who were there first were treated the, the roughest. And, uh, you know, and, and, and now, you know, we fight immigration, like, you know, it, it's just a strange time. Yeah. You know, I think the more we know, the better we're able to deal with it. And that's why I'm thankful for this film is telling us a little more. Nope. Nobody knew about Oklahoma in the Osage until, you know, really outside of that County until uh, Grand wrote his book, his beautiful book. Yeah. Marty's made a movie of it. Well, hopefully millions of others will get a chance to uncover and discover that history through your work, through Scorsese's work. Uh, Jack, thank you uh, so, so much for your time here today. There's so much to uncover uh, with this story, and I can't wait for audiences to experience it for themselves, whether it's on streaming or in the theater. So thank you uh, very, very much. I hope you're able to shorten my answers. (laughs) (laughs) No, they were wonderful. Thank you. It was great talking with you, Matt. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to my interviews with the cinematographer for Killers of the Flower Moon, Rodrigo Prieto, and the film's production designer, Jack Fisk, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Killers of the Flower Moon is now currently playing in theaters from Paramount Pictures and Apple. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.